This is the Pain Information Network. Hey there. Well, this is really cool. Time Magazine has the anti-antidepressant on its front cover. A surprising new drug that may change that. What? Well, depression afflicts a lot of people. They say 16 million. It's a lot more, especially in the pain world. And that's what the pain world is all about. Situational depression and anxiety. I've talked about that. PAD, pain, addiction, and depression. They're basically synonymous and neurobiologically. Well, guess what this is about? This is about that date rape drug, that ketamine. Well, it's really not a date rape drug if it's used right. It can really help. Now, it's probably good to go to time and Google it and and read this stuff. Uh, I'm going to do a whole podcast on it because it's definitely worth it. So there you are, you know. Um, <clears throat> we are not crazy for using ketamine to help with pain, addiction, and depression. I, I just think it's a, a cornerstone that we're going to be utilizing as 40% of mixed depressive disorders really don't respond to t- traditional SNRIs or SSRIs. All right, so where have I been? Well, I've been in Chicago. I had three meetings. If you go to ASIPP.org, you can kind of see what we do. Go to previous meetings, and you can see I was involved in three of those meetings that uh, I think were really good. Controlled substance management, uh, practice management, and compliance, and also the board review course. So that was a week in Chicago, but I'm home, happy to be home, going to do some podcasts. And, yeah, you're right, I cornered some folks there. So we've got some podcasts coming up that are really interesting, including Andrea. I'm going to answer a question today, and this is from Susan. I I told you, Susan, I was getting to you. Um, And, folks, please, if you have a question you want answered, and this is an informational podcast. It's not – this is not medical advice. This is informational, and I want uh, you to talk everything over with a qualified physician before you take any of my advice. So – Susan works in the VA system, and let me tell you something, I love the VA because it has so much uh, talent and it has so much potential for uh, improvement in the pain management arena, as well as depression and addiction, unfortunately. So we can really help our vets, and I appreciate her doing so much for our vets because I've been in these institutions, worked in these institutions. And it's fun to sit and really talk to these folks. They've got stories. Uh, I won't forget in my training, which was years ago, you'd sit with a World War II vet, and I'd sit with a uh, vet from Vietnam. And, you know, as different as they were and their worlds were so different, they were the same. They suffered from the same problems of PTSD, of uh, potential for substance abuse. You know, they... They they just really needed somewhere to lean, and that's the VA. So thanks, Susan. So here we are. Susan, <clears throat> picking up somebody else's practice. Recently discovered the podcast. Here's the question. All right, do no harm. You're right. First, do no harm. But um, that's kind of interesting when you go back and you look at the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath does not say first, do no harm in this context. It says, do the best you can, but if you can't do that, first do no harm. So, in other words, Susan here wants to do the best she can with tough patients. Okay, here they come. All right, I call it a risk shift. 
somebody's referred a patient in, they're on these enormous doses, and what are we going to do? We don't want to prescribe these enormous doses, but the patient expects it, sometimes almost as an entitlement. So when you're covering for a patient with no documented understanding of why the patient is on chronic pain medications, yeah, I really get that. Say back pain, for example. Back pain is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. And back pain has to be understood that without a conscious effort to get a differential diagnosis, you can miss everything from cancer all the way down to something correctable by surgery. So she's exactly right. They come in on these kind of vague diagnosis on very high doses or unsafe combinations, and that would include benzodiazepines, I assume. And the patient doesn't want to make any change. Well, all right, me to you, me to the podcast community, me to Susan. The tail doesn't wag the dog. The tip of the pin connected to the arm, connected to all that training in the prefrontal cortex, takes the best stuff that we have, you know, our our, our clinical acumen, and it applies it to a problem. And it's not a problem in a bad way. It's a medical problem that, that has to be addressed, not solved, but addressed. All right, so here's an example she gives. Somebody's on 100 micrograms of fentanyl. That's a big darn dose, along with hydrocodone. And that is, you know, if you look, look at the CDC guideline, let, you're right, we got puppies outside. We're outside today. And I'm waving at Kathy. And um, you look at the CDC guidelines. We're, we're just not doing things business as normal. And when they're on benzos, the synergistic effect between opioids and benzodiazepines are 1 plus 1 equals 3. And um, my good friend Sandy Silverman, you've heard me say this. When you look at an autopsy report and it says opioid, benzodiazepine, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, what, what really killed the patient? We don't know. So you've got to take these variables and work with the things you can work with. First of all, can you get them off benzos? And I've gone through this ad nauseum that uh, the American Psychiatric Association, Canadian, and the Britain Psychiatric Group called NICE, you know, PTSD has no room for benzos. Um, anxiety disorders, we've got better ways to treat it, you know. Panic attacks, we've got better ways to treat it. Please give your provider a chance to offer those to you. So, in other words, she says here, I am not comfortable. Agreed. I do not know the patient. The permanent or previous prescriber is not available in the near future. Well, I see that too. The documentation is sketchy, um, and the patient doesn't want to change. Well, um, that's a part and parcel of what we do, and it leads to a lot of complaints, and it leads to a lot of patient dissatisfaction. But the first thing we want to do is give you the right things for the right reason. Now, she also has a second part to this question. And at what level? I know you said you hate to put on a limit. I do hate to put on a limit because I do treat cancer and I do treat complex um, spine problems and that sort of thing. But let me tell you, if you've got a nondescript diagnosis like low back pain, let's really look at that. Where's the risk-reward benefit? Is the risk-reward benefit in the patient's favor or not? And in this case, it's not. Benzos, 100 mics of fentanyl, and hydrocodone, no. 
We've got to work on that. How do you work on that? You work on it with reflective interviewing. You work on it with this uh, process of looking at patients' underlying things that you can change, smoking, modifiable features and health profile, weight control, working on um, doing things like uh, benchmarks, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months. So they understand that you're holding them to this. If they aren't following the benchmarks, you know, where are we going? If their pain level is 9 or 10 on the subjective scale every time they come in, where are we going? Well, where you're going is nowhere. So that's what we educate our patients about is this isn't working. And sometimes giving more is not helping. That's opiate-induced hyperalgesia. And presumably a patient has this or there's other issues. So you know the drug screens, the pill counts, the patch counts, have them put each expended patch on a piece of paper, date it, and bring it into you. Okay, none of these patches get kind of like lost to the ether. They come in with them every time, and you start coming down. They'll be fine. Patients don't die from pain. They die from this. And so you're the you're the provider of health care. Unfortunately, you know, it goes with the territory. You've got to be, um, you know, forthright with your discussion, but you have to also be gentle. Reflective interviewing. Now, tell me how you feel when you come down on your medicine. Tell me why you think you need to be on this medicine. Oh, I see. You feel this. You know, you can kind of look at American Society of Addiction Medicine stuff on reflective interviewing, and you kind of get a sense that, well, I kind of think that this person needs a little modification. And that's true. Make it collaborative. You're not their enemy. You're their physician. That's something that has to be established early on, saying, I am your care provider. Care is the underlined word. And so you kind of develop this relationship because... The uh, most difficult thing to establish is a patient-physician relationship built on trust when there's opioids involved because opioids are the great divide. It's the wall that Reagan tore down. It's the patient's grip. And I'm telling you, when that brain gets so comfortable with that opioid, it's very hard to come down. I understand that. All right. Do you say that there should be some improvement in function in non-cancer-related chronic pain? Absolutely. Well, what are you doing? How are you improving your quality of life? Back to benchmarks. All right, put five things up on the refrigerator, and then come to me in a month and show me what you've done. Put five more up on the refrigerator. And when you come to me uh, two, three months down the road, show me you've done stuff. Now, I commend you for getting some of the VA folks down on uh, these opioids. That was a real problem for us. VA didn't used to report to the PDMP or the drug monitoring program that we can get online and look, see if there's uh, doctor shopping or if there's multiple pharmacies, that sort of thing. Now they're on, and they're really trying. So coming down on opioids is a good thing for our vets. It decreases risk, and... Tell people, you know, go do things you used to love to do. And think of those things you used to love to do. Um, you know, 
it's not a gray area. He used to love to fish. He used to and get him out of the house. If they have to do anything, if they have to walk in the mall, socialize anywhere, you win. So, all right, let me summarize. First of all, the plan is this. You understand the concept of the tail doesn't wag the dog. You're in charge. I know you might get bullied, and you might feel very uncomfortable having that conversation. But with 30,000 opioid-related deaths every year, it's your responsibility to have a conversation. Okay, number two, the conversation goes bad. I'm not changing. I know what's right for me. I know what's good for my body. Don't you tell me. Uh, I don't know you, and I have a right. Opioids are not a right. Um, Health care is something that the VA system has an intense desire to improve. Good. And you're improving health care. All right, this is me to you. This is CHOPS. You do the right thing when you stand up and you give them the opportunity to be in a better place, not now, but down the road. They'll say thank you. Believe me, do you get people off drugs like this or get them way down? They think clearer. They're sleeping better. Things are better. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia isn't such a problem. And the other thing is... um, you know, I hate to bring it up, but there's always a question of diversion. Duragesic is really a five-day patch, and it's got enough drug in there for five days. I've actually detoxed people on Duragesic patches um, in a way. Um, not exactly right, but, you know, it just kind of gradually diminishes and goes away. It's not a two-day patch. You can't have a Q48. It's a three-day patch, and... That's the way that it was FDA approved. That's the way it should be written. And they can come down. Fentanyl, as you know, is very potent. I've done that. Gray Death, that was another one of my podcasts. And you got another one coming, too, on fentanyl. Um, And osteoarthritis of the knees, well, that's a very common diagnosis. You know, you have topicals and you have other ways to treat that. Opioids are a very poor choice. And when they're combined with benzos, let's rethink the whole thing. So it looks like, Susan, you got the right ideas. You're doing the right things. I'm just going to conclude with another recommendation of thought that um, opioids aren't meant to be running through your bloodstream. Alcohol isn't meant to be running through your bloodstream. I mean, so many different things. You know, Sometimes they're clinically res- you know, resident to the patient, and in this case, you know, but are they resilient? Are they the things that turn the patient around? In this case, it doesn't look like it. Same thing month after month after month. Point that out. Say you're going to a better place and for better reasons, and I think you'll win. Um, drop me a line if you need more help. I'll be happy to help you. All right. I'm going to get this up.